1: Guest today, Jake Wood is on the show. He's an entrepreneur, author, combat veteran, former Marine, and former college football player. He's the co founder and CEO of Team Rubicon. It's one of the fastest growing nonprofit organizations in America. Love these guys. Team Rubicon serves communities by mobilizing vets to continue their service. They leverage their skills and experience to help people prepare, respond, and recover from disasters and humanitarian crisis. They helped in Haiti, they're helping with COVID. Such a great mission, such a great organization. He's an author of two books, one that just came out this week, Once a Warrior, and the one that called Take Command, came out in 2014. He sought after a keynote speaker, recognized expert on topics of leadership, organizational culture, crisis management. That's what we talk about on this show today, particularly culture. Certainly, we talk about Team Rubicon. His prior life, he served as a Marine Corps as a scout sniper from 2005 to 2009, two deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. And he played college football for the Wisconsin Badgers. An amazing story. Volunteered after he graduated to enlist in the Marine, became a sniper. He's just a great guy. And one of my fr- good friends is volunteered for Team Rubicon and worked with Jake and connected me and Jake. And obviously, once I get Marines on the show, we have great conversations, and this one did not disappoint. We talk about some of the things you've heard me talk about time and time again, but it validates the importance of decentralized creating a decentralized culture the importance of culture the importance of you know having your people on the front line empowering them to make these critical decisions for your organization it's the only way as jake points out to effectively deal with crisis that's how team rubicon attacks things attacks this kind of chaotic disaster situations when they volunteer their forces to help out with a hurricane or floods or whatever it's the only way that you can survive in a chaotic environment so we hit that point home But we also talk about the importance of storytelling. That was my big takeaway from the show. Jake pointed out, you know, when we talk about culture, you have maybe heard me say before on this show that if you want your organization to really inspire the folks or we talk about engagement all the time. How do we get people engaged? You get people engaged by showing them, doesn't matter what the product is if it's widgets or whatever, that they're part of something bigger than themselves. And the job as a leader is to be an effective storyteller. Tell them that story about why you exist as an organization and what you're trying to do and the lives that you're impacting. It doesn't matter what product you are. It may, may seem unsexy. It may be washers and widgets. It doesn't matter. Just tell the story. Get good at telling the story about why you're, you exist as an organization. It's so powerful. And, of course, this book that just came out this week, Once a Warrior, it's, it's a book that I, we talk about that I think America needs right now, You know, particularly after this contentious election and this crazy year 2020. Jake Wood does a great job explaining how he came home, he wanted to make the world a better place through humanitarian efforts, and he uses his experience at the time as a combat Marine. And that, those life-changing experiences, and how he took what he learned from the battlefield and how he applied it to what he's doing now at Team Rubicon is a great reminder of the American spirit, and how now more than ever we need to activate that for the common good. And that is why I think this book is so important. That's why I think this conversation was so impactful for me, because it reminds us that there we all have a tremendous amount of influence and gifts that we can contribute to the world on the greatest country on the planet. Despite all this contention and the division, that the craziness that we see in the media, there's a vast majority of us that are hungry to get back to those old days of ask not what Your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country type mentality. That's the type of leadership that is needed. And that's the action and the obligation I think we all have. And if you're listening to this, take it to heart. Listen to this Buy his book, Once a Warrior. It's great. And Jake is a great, a great American and a great individual. And and this is a great conversation. And it's brought to you by my sponsor, Equity Bank. They've been with me two years now, almost 50 episodes they've sponsored. And I've kept me more proud to have them as a sponsor. Equity Bank, it's a team that knows what it takes to start and grow a business. It's been exciting to watch them grow into one of the fastest growing banks in the Midwest. They're now listed on the NASDAQ exchange. They got locations all across Kansas, as well as Oklahoma, Missouri, and Arkansas with plans to expand further. Clearly, this team at Equity Bank knows how to lead for growth. They understand entrepreneurship. They understand leadership. And so if it feels like your current bank is more of a follower than a leader, and you want to work with a bank that really understands your needs Check out my friends at Equity Bank. Go to equitybank.com to learn more. All right, let's get on with this conversation with Jake Wood, the CEO of Team Rubicon, here on Dose of Leadership. Jake Wood, Team Rubicon. Welcome to Dose of Leadership, my friend.
0: Yeah, hey, thank you for having me on.
1: Obviously, I love having Prime Marines on here. It makes the conversation really easy. I know this is going to be a good one, but um, (laughs) man. um, So I've followed you ever since... You know, Team Rubicon came out because our mutual friend Pied and you know, he was involved with you guys and he told me all about you. And I've been meaning to have on you for, for years and I got sidetracked and you got a new book. And I said, gosh dang it, I got to get you out of here. So,
0: yeah, well, I'm in. excited to join. It's, uh, it seems like a, a great time to to be on in the, you know, in the shadows of, of Veterans Day. And with the book coming out this week, it's no time like the present.
1: Absolutely. And, um, uh, happy belated Marine Corps birthday, by the way. Thank you.
0: 245 years young. Yeah,
1: no kidding. Well, the the new book is coming out, Once a Warrior, or it is out, and highlights your story of going to Iraq and then coming back and Team Rubicon. And The reason why I love this book so much and why I love what you do is one thing I talk about on this show a lot is, and I think our, our main obligation, the only obligation where we're here is to make the place better than we found it. and that seems to be something you f- dove into as you came back from Iraq and trying to figure out what your purpose was, right? I mean, and, and, and it's like, you've just embraced this mission of trying to make the place better than you found it. How does that resonate when you hear me say that?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's an element of truth to that. Yeah, I think there've been a couple of points in my life where, you know, I thought uh, I was at this decision point where, you know, I was either going to pursue a life of service or I was going to go to do something like on Wall Street you know and the first time that I I hit that juncture um, was when I was graduating college Mm -hmm. and ultimately I decided to go join the Marine Corps I wasn't ready to go wear a suit and uh, you know the second time was when I got out of the Marine Corps I thought okay well I just served a lot I just got back from Iraq Afghanistan I feel like I've done my part time to go you know make some money or you know wear a suit and uh and then i kind of stumbled into team rubicon and and clearly over the last decade i haven't been one to wear too many suits <laughs> right work
1: one thing i'm, I'm curious uh, you when you were playing football up in wisconsin uh right was it wisconsin did i get that right yep. yeah yeah yeah, yeah, UW and, Badger. yeah and obviously the ward kicked off Nine Eleven 11 it happened you decided to go enlist, which I highly commendable, but why didn't you consider becoming an officer just out of curiosity?
0: Yeah, you know, there were there were a couple of things that led into that. Um, first was the practical. So I, I did start speaking to some officer selection officers about perhaps going in as an officer. Um, and, you know, bear in mind, like you said, I, I played football. Right. So I, I I started exploring this right after my final game, which was on January 1st, 2005. And I was an offensive tackle for Wisconsin. So you can imagine I'm six foot six, I'm 290 pounds. right? And uh, so I meet this captain, this Marine captain, and I tell him, I, I think I want to be an officer. And he looks me up and down and, you know, I don't fit the bill, right? I'm, <laughs> marine officers are trim, trim guys and gals, right? Yeah. And he asked me, he goes, you know, how fast can you run three miles? And I kind of, you know, chorted, you know, I like, go, oh, what do you mean? You know, I haven't run three miles and five years. Um, but I could tell you what my 40 yard dash time is. And he said, well, you got to be able to run in 18 minutes if you want to be an officer. I said, okay, well, that's, that's pretty aggressive, but, but I'll get there. If you tell me that's what I need to do. And he goes, you got to be able to do 20 pull-ups too. I'm like, that's, that's not a problem. And then he asked me the, the, the real question. He goes, you, you know, you played football, you have any injuries, you have any surgeries? I said, well, yeah. I mean, I had my shoulder reconstructed. I had my foot reconstructed. I dislocated my other shoulder. And he just shook his head and he said, "You know what? You're a lot of paperwork, kid. I got people lined up outside my door to join, you know, to go to OCS right now." Um, and he never called me back. Wow. Um, yeah, but then you know that was coupled with you know some conversations I was having with with some veterans that I knew who were coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, and they said, "You know, Jake, if you really are looking to get into the fight and you're looking to lead people." Their perspective was that this was a squad war, you know, that the, yeah. the company and platoon maneuver warfare was over and that this was really a squad-based war. And so they said, you know, go be a non-commissioned officer, be a corporal or a sergeant, and you'll get all the leadership that you want. And so I, I took that advice to heart. I, you know, I stopped trying to get that guy to call me back. I enlisted and, you know, I got what I wished for. I, I right. became uh, an NCO and I, I led Marines in combat.
1: I, I love that story. I mean, that's great, you know. And it, I think the universe kind of lined it. That's how it's supposed to be, anyway, right? I mean, I think mm-hmm. that's that's how it was meant to be. But um, I'm curious. Every vet that I've had on the show, we all had these kind of experiences when you got out of it, you got away from it, you got away from the Marine Corps. That's when it became clear to me what the lessons that I learned. I think when I was in it, I took it for granted. I just kind of assumed the world operated, not not fully, but I mean. You're surrounded by the same group of knuckleheads all the time. You take it mm-hmm. for granted. When I got out and I lost my job at American and I, I thought all I knew how to do was fly airplanes. And I started working in corporate America. And, man, that's when the lessons of the Marine Corps kind of slapped me in the face. Did something yeah. like that happen to you?
0: Well... You know, it's it's hard to say, you know, because I, I got out of the Marine Corps in late 2009 and, and it was only 60 days later that we started Team Rubicon. So yeah. So that was really my, fresh. Yeah. Yeah. My my wife likes to joke that I never got out of the Marine Corps just because <laughs> right. you know, the way I stepped into Team Rubicon was so almost seamless. Um, But, but I will tell you this, I mean, as an entrepreneur, and, and I would hope most people would say a, a successful entrepreneur, even though it's a social enterprise, I think that, my success is due almost entirely to my time in the marine corps yeah. and i've had the pleasure of of meeting some really incredible entrepreneurs you know guys mm-hmm. who've built you know venture backed companies guys who've ipo'd companies and i see the challenges that they face and i and i understand that i have such an advantage uh, even over them because of the experience that i had you know leading in environments like combat mm-hmm. where you know there's you look at what's happening right now with covid and how it's gripping like paralyzing these companies in these industries right and it's listen it's an unprecedented crisis but it's basically combat right yeah. it's, it's that Luca environment that we're lear- we learn to lead through and so you know I just think man I I was I was as better as well prepared as anybody coming out of a Harvard MBA in fact I think I was massively more prepared um, yeah I'd Toronto say more for sure. Because
1: I think what and, and you you got it in spades far more than I did, but even my limited ex, you know in the aviation side of, of the house in the Marine Corps, the the one of the biggest lessons I got from the takeaway from the Marine Corps and flying airplanes was to be a composed force in a chaotic situation. That, I mean that was seemed to be like something that was drummed into you all the time is to never lose your bearing, always to be composed, and and that has been kind of my mantra in, in the corporate arena, is. I would rather spend my limited time and energy and resources on being the composed force in kind of a a chaotic situation instead of what I see people trying to do is to try to make sure or or kind of go through this myth that chaos doesn't exist. It's just kind of Mm. of the norm, right? And and if you can be the composed force, that's going to give you – that's what people need. That's what people want. That's what's demanded of the situation, particularly now.
0: Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I mean, when you, when, as you're talking and you mentioned you know, being a pilot, I'm thinking of Sully Sullenberger, right? Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the transcripts, the audio coming out of the cabin. You know, there's a couple. There's so many lessons to be learned from how he handled that, or even the woman flying that Southwest yeah, Airlines exactly. plane mm-hmm. years ago, uh, who was a veteran herself. You know, here he's got this catastrophic engine failure. His voice never rises, right? A, a, a decibel. He is calm, cool, and collected. But at the same time, he's not sticking his head in the sand. No. He's communicating that this is a this is a terrible hey, this is bad. We're going down in the Hudson. And but it's that bearing that helped his, you know, the rest of his crew maintain their composure, do their job, and prepare for the worst. And this is something we've been talking a lot this year during COVID. I think so many leaders in corporate America, certainly in the government. They relied on hope as a strategy, right. which is kind of like rule number one of warfare is hope is not a strategy, right? And right. They, they put their head in the sand and they tried to convince the people that were listening to them that this was not going to be that bad. Hey, it's not going to come here. We're, you know, it's, and, and people see right through that. You know? And what Absolutely. people want is a leader who can confront the brutal facts of a situation, oh God, yeah. the brutal truth, communicate that clearly, and at the same time, inspire that you know, we're going to be able to see this through at the end. And, and I think that the military is just really good at teaching people how to you know, dance that knife's edge between communicating how bad a situation is, but maintaining that spirit of, we are going to overcome. I, I remember when I was
1: working at the wing up in El Toro back in the late 90s. And I worked for a guy named General McCorkle. And he was the wing commander, and um and he told he was telling me and another uh, captain there we were talking about you know the bad news and and I can't even remember how we started talking about this, but I remember what he said was he goes, just remember he goes, never ever sugarcoat the situation, the reality of the situation you know don't don't protect the bad news from the from the folks just mm-hmm. because they're 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 obligated to hear it." And, yeah. he, and, and the other thing that he said that really struck stuck with me was he said he goes, and the the reality is they may not like to hear the bad news, but they will appreciate getting the, the brutal truth. And the reality mm-hmm. is that they, now that they know, now they're more empowered to help you solve the problem. Right. And in corporate America, I can't tell you how many times I've seen that where they try to, well, I don't want to, you know, they don't give all the news and they leave some, some voids and some vacuums. And the problem is, is that people are going to fill those void and vacuums to your point. Yeah. And they're usually going to fill it with something worse, right? Yeah. Well, that and
0: if they realize that they're that you're hiding it from them, they're also yeah. going to leap to conclusions about you don't trust us. You don't have confidence in us. And so then that starts to undermine the whole, the whole team mentality, the whole uh, ability for them to actually remain faithful, remain inspired, remain confident that they can overcome. Like you're directly undermining that. By thinking that they can't handle the 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 exactly, truth.
1: yeah, I talk about well it, it, what came clear to me was the whole idea of commander's intent and in decentralizing a situation, and so I've been pushing that for years in, in in my training and on this show that I think the secret sauce to all these challenges is is creating this decentralized culture of where people mm. are asking for forgiveness instead of permission, where the senior leaders are maniacally focused on communicating intent, which is. I'm finding is very challenging, but but then get in the middle and below the engine of the organization to become these empowered, execute, you know, executors of of making these decisions with partial information as long as it's supporting the intent. Does that define your time in combat? You know, how important was commander's intent in following it there when you were on the ground in, in
0: Oh, I think it's, I think it's preeminently important. You know, there was the, the whole doctrine in the late nineties in the Marine Corps was, was that of the strategic corporal, right? Um, you know, this notion that in fourth generation warfare, uh, it was the NCOs, non-commissioned officers, young 20, 21 year olds right. without a college degree who are going to be making the most consequential des- decisions on complex dynamic battlefields. And it was so prescient because that's exactly what played out in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, and, and I was fortunate that, you know, to be a part of a fighting force that empowered me to make such crucial decisions, and and I and I always was able to make them because I knew what the commander's intent was, like you, like you mentioned, but also the culture of the Marine Corps, the culture of the military writ large, is one that is does designed to guide decisions in the absence of orders, right? And so it's that it's that it's that culture that um, almost ensured that we would consistently, not always, you know, you're not going to be perfect, no. but that we would consistently reach the right conclusions and decisions. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that we've taken into team Rubicon. You know, we're, we're a, 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 a disaster response force of a hundred thousand volunteers, most of them veterans. We're responding to literally hundreds of disasters across right. hundreds of communities every single year. You don't do that with a, with a top, a top down, You know, approach where you're dictating every single move on the chessboard. You do it by creating this agility within your teams that is, that allows them to, you know, make empowered decisions following the vision and the values that you've established for them. I mean, that's the only way that we've been successful at the scale that we have. And we saw it in spades during COVID when, you know, the first time in American history, that all 50 states plus the US territories were under a simultaneous declaration of emergency right um, i mean this was this was this was remarkable and yet we were able to pivot and move our teams into i think i think it was over 315 communities across the country almost simultaneously uh you know you, you again you you don't do that with centralized command and control you no. just can't
1: it well, it's impossible and i think that's well, and even you look back to go back to Haiti, which kind of triggered the whole, this whole idea of Rubicon, you know, and from what, when you look at the government and largesse trying to, it's such a disaster. I mean, a lot of times, you know, and I think it's sometimes the people that are in charge because it's, they think it's got to be command and control, but then you go in and you step in and and you do what you've always done you you can see that it that it works you're right i think it's the only way you can be successful is if you decentralize it otherwise it's just it's just too complex and um, oh
0: absolutely and, and i think companies that are able to achieve that type of decentralization and agility they just run circles around the competition absolutely. you know they're able to react and adapt so much more quickly And the the multitude of solutions that you in, that you generate are are you know Tenfold, oh, yeah. you know, a, a top-down approach yeah. because you have people nearest the point of friction mm-hmm. who are observing not just the challenges directly, but also have the best understanding of resources that that they can take to to fight them. I mean, you just see this this innovation that's happening at the ground level. That you know, if you have designed your company well, you then take that innovation and you adopt it at scale, right? So you you know, it's just it creates this innovation engine that's you know, the the, the difference in sinking or swimming in, in environments like we're seeing with COVID.
1: Hey, we're about halfway through the conversation, but I wanted to take the time to talk about my good friends, the sponsor here of this special series at Equity Bank. Have you ever noticed that most business bankers seem to really understand just one thing? It's banking, right? And not a lot about business. It makes sense since most banks were built generations ago, and now they're often run by caretakers not business builders well it's not the case here at equity bank the bankers at equity bank didn't inherit a bank generations ago they built one of their own they know that building something takes expertise vision and hard work and over the past decade they have built one of the region's fastest growing banks by working side by side with customers with entrepreneurs with leaders in communities all throughout kansas missouri arkansas and oklahoma Recently, Equity Bank was listed on the NASDAQ exchange, which gives them even greater capabilities to take on those big deals that growing businesses need to keep on growing. So if you're tired of talking to bankers who've never really ran or owned or built a business, then I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised when you talk to my friends at Equity Bank. Thanks for listening to this show. Let's get back to the conversation, this unique and special series on leadership and entrepreneurship brought to you by my friends at Equity Bank. Yeah. And to me, that's where it makes it really rewarding and fun for me is if you can create that environment. I can't tell you how many times I've seen, even in just my 17 years in the corporate arena where, and I've made that mistake. I've made the mistake where I was like, well, I'll, I'll make this easy for you. Uh, I'm going to create this nice laminated binder with this checklist. You don't even have to think, man. I mean, that's how I even, I said that myself, you know, someone that came from the, and it was an absolute failure because I thought I was making it easy for them. And then when I finally just, instead of having a 60 page laminated checklist binder for them to follow. I just gave them a one page synopsis of what I wanted to have happen. It just blossomed. It blew up, you know? And I I mean, I think there's, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say that I I saw creative solutions. I just, it just blew me away. You know? Yeah.
0: I think there's a time and place for, for checklists and process, right? I mean, you you don't want people recreating the wheel for simple processes and tasks. And so you you want some standardization there. And I, I think that, I think that the the aviation community has actually done a really good job of balancing this. Right, there yeah. are there are some things that must happen. There are standard uh, you know uh, process loops that you you should go through because some of these situations they've been encountered before. Right, right. there are time tested solutions. Absolutely, uh, but but you know there is no playbook for certain situations. That's right. And if you if you,
1: oh, I lost you.
0: Oh, sorry. Uh, I, I would just said, if you know, if there are some situations where if you're counting on a playbook, you're you're going to fail.
1: Yeah. And, w- and the aviation community, we kind of say these things were written in blood and so they're important. And so somebody has been here before and you're right. But, and the purpose of the checklist is not so you become this automaton robot without thinking. It's it, It's the exact opposite. They're there so you can free up the mind to deal with the inevitable unforeseen that wasn't, you know, the landing on the Hudson or...
0: Yeah, Whatever. exactly. Your your brain is nothing but a computer processor. Right. right. And if you're mm-hmm. taking up bandwidth, trying to, you know, think through uh, rote uh, uh, processes, then you, you're you're sucking you're sucking CPU from, you know, solving really complex problems. <laughs> That's right.
1: That's and right. I
0: just I just demonstrated how little I know about computers, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: So tell me how this works. So you see, um, like just like in COVID, so how does Team Rubicon, you know, the klaxon sounds and we say, here's a disaster we need to go to. How do you get involved? How do you coordinate with federal, you know, local, state, federal agencies? How do you insert yourself into this situation?
0: Yeah, well, you know, it's it's probably an understatement to say it's tremendously complex. But, um, you know, at the core You know, coordination is key, just like on the battlefield. You have to know where all the moving pieces are. You know, you have to have uh, the necessary transparency across agencies up top, you know, top down, left and right, uh, governmental and non-governmental. And and we do that. Um, You know, we identify disasters. um, You know, obviously, there are some that, that you can't miss because there are massive hurricanes that are dominating the news cycle. I think the, the, the what's special about Team Rubicon is with over a hundred thousand volunteers across the country, we really have these sensors in these communities throughout the United States who are identifying these these much smaller, low attention disasters uh, that we're able to move into and assist communities who would otherwise just be completely forgotten and left behind. So when they identify, you know, whether it's a, a small creek that's over flooding or a, you know a, a, a small tornado that just doesn't you know make more than a, a regional headline. They're putting up initial situation reports, and that kicks off a process that's, again, going back to the right processes. You know, it kicks off a mission planning process that goes through a series of, of steps that would feel familiar to any any veteran: a warning order, operations order, uh, fragos. Um, You know, we identify what the resource requirements are going to be. Obviously, we're we're coordinating all of that with local officials. In, in, in hopefully most of those relationships are already well established. You know, hopefully those volunteer leaders in those communities already know who the emergency manager is, or the sheriff, or the fire chief. Uh, but if they don't, you know, we'll 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 make those those approaches simultaneously. We've got great relationships at the state and federal level, uh, which of course you know there are fewer to maintain there, so it's a little bit easier to have. You know, we have a, a you know a blended approach to logistics and supply chain. Uh, we've got Hundreds of, of equipment trailers stashed across the country that can sustain operations for five to seven days. But then we have a major logistics hub in Dallas, Texas that supports operations with you know either our more expensive equipment like you know big earth moving machines mm-hmm. or big satellite communications equipment stuff like that, uh, but also can you know send in resupply drops and things of that nature. Um, but the real secrets are people, you know. So getting people on the ground is is the real key.
1: And That's just it sounds so fascinating. But I, I, how do you get if, if this is, you know, nationwide, I mean, do you have, are all your kind of key points in various locations, are those all volunteers or are they paid full-time paid?
0: Yeah. So the, you know, the Team Rubicon has got about 200 full-time staff at this point in 2020. We've got about 1500 volunteer leaders throughout the country. So these are men and women volunteers who serve in uh, really critical functional roles ranging from operations planning to communications and logistics at a territory, state and local level. The focus for us over the last you know uh, three or four years has been on building city specific resiliency. So creating leadership teams in the top 300 communities across the country who are you know almost you know managing their own team Rubicon chapter, if you want to think of it that way. Um, And so, again, it goes back to how do you empower them? So, you know, we're able to empower those people, volunteers, not even paid staff, with incredible responsibility because, you know, they have the necessary systems in place. We've established standards that we're able to measure against and hold people accountable to. Most importantly, though, you know, they understand the vision of the organization and we have an incredibly strong culture that we've been very deliberate in cultivating that's guiding their actions.
1: Yeah. No, I, that, I love that answer. Is that where you find most of your, is that your biggest challenge is, and do you spend most of your time communicating the culture or what, what is your biggest challenge at the, at the seat you're sitting in?
0: Yeah. I mean, if I think about my job, it really comes down to two things. It's, it's what we just talked about. It's culture. And, you know, and that's a combination of, of, you know, finding the right people, you know, weeding out the wrong people. Right making sure that what we espouse in our values is not contradicted by the process or the policies that we put in place um, so that we're not eroding, you know, the value of our culture from within. But also, you know, the other half of my job is is frankly money. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're a, we're a charity. We have raised over the last 10 years $250 million to do this work, but that's a lot of money, but we've responded to 700 disasters in that time. So <laughs> right. it's going out the door. And I like to joke that there's a dozen things more important to us than money, but they all cost money. So I spend a healthy amount of my time raising money, which, you know, honestly, any CEO is doing, whether they're a for-profit or a non-profit.
1: Yeah. yeah,
0: Financing your companies is the most important thing you can do.
1: Yeah. I can imagine. I mean, I I just can't imagine that has to be the full-time job is like, particularly if it's a non-profit, like you said, I mean, is finding these, these resources, the mm-hmm. people and the money, yeah. You know, the thing that's great about your mission, though, which I think you've got an edge on, and maybe this was – I'm curious if this was the catalyst when you set it out. It's its twofold. Obviously, you're, you're helping the obvious, the disaster. Um, people get a great deal of satisfaction around that. I, I tend to believe that any organization, no matter what you're doing, yeah, I don't care what the product is. If you feel like <clears throat> your people can wrap their arms around something bigger than themselves, it, it you're almost unstoppable. And this makes it easy. Just like the military, it was easy to wrap your arms around what the Marine Corps was trying to accomplish. Right? Yeah, and, I, and, and, I, I totally agree. And so this, where y- you find yourself, and you've got all these vets that are coming back. And you you hear time and time again that these people like I feel lost I feel like a sense of purpose you know it's like what this was it's so difficult to adjust this gives them something they can wrap their arms around that isn't that dissimilar from what they were doing in the military am, am I right is so this is that's was this the catalyst for you for starting this I mean it's like a win win obviously helping the world but my gosh your pool of volunteers are hungry for purpose. That's why I think you're
0: successful. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, and it was that was evident early on in our journey with Team Rubicon that that there was a a really incredible positive impact on the veterans who were doing this work. But I I think you're touching on something that I think is probably one of the most undervalued uh, tools in a leader's toolkit, Mm -hmm. and that's that's the power of storytelling. Yeah um you know when you talk about purpose you know often i talk about it relative to the veteran community but purpose is fundamental to any human being's life you know we all need purpose it's it's perhaps the most important thing that we can find and so as a leader how do you convince people to find purpose in the work that they do um you know even if you're a for-profit company selling widgets you know i think that there's such a powerful you know value in in being good storytellers for leaders because when I think about what a what a company or an organization is, at the end of the day, it's a story. It's got a it's got a beginning. It's got a prologue, you know, and it's got an ending. And that's that's your vision, right? It's that yeah. final chapter. It's how, how does this end? How does this story end? And I think human beings, you know, whether they admit it or not, or whether they realize it or not, when they close their eyes, they 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 imagine themselves as part of a story. You know, whether it's the story, you know, the nonfiction story of their their real life, or it's some imaginary fantasy that they want to be a part of to escape it you know, since the dawn of time, when we first created the spoken word, like we, we've told stories and that's important to us. And so as a, as a leader, I think being able to tell stories helps people to feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves. Yeah. And if you, if you treat your employees, like just simply unnamed characters that make a brief appearance on page 46, like that's how they're going to act. That's how they're going to show up to work. That's right. But if you make them feel like they're a consequential, you know, character, you know, a protagonist in that story, man, they're going to come in and they're going to act like they are impacting that plot every single day that they show up. And I think that that's just a a really powerful way of thinking about it. And so I think one of the things that we've done, tellers at Team Rubicon, um,
1: I love that. I mean, that's so great that you're able to. You you totally get that, and everything you said just like resonates with me deeply. I remember, I got in a fight with a, a CEO. A hotel company I was working for, and he was just, he didn't get that. And he he kind of got pissed at me for always kind of bringing back the example of the Marine Corps. But I told him, I said, look, the, Marine, the reason why the Marine Corps seems so cultish to you is because early on, I had Marines wrap their arms around me and point to the all the squares on the base of the Iwo Jima Memorial and say, look at all that, you know, Bella Wood, you know frozen, chosen case on all that. And, and then there's blank ones, you know, so you're part of that story. So it doesn't matter if you're a grease monkey turning wrenches in the motor pool mm-hmm. or you're, you know, Jake Wood slinging rounds down range, snooping and pooping, sneaking around. It doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. I mean, you feel like you're part of that brother and sisterhood and that's yeah, a and big
0: I, deal. And there's another element of storytelling too, that I think is underestimated going back to, to culture and guiding decisions and behaviors in the absence of orders. I often tell people that, you know, when the Marine Corps was teaching tactics, battlefield tactics, and they were talking about, you know, how do you respond to a a close ambush or a far ambush? And they, you know, you go up to a chalkboard and you draw the X's and O's just like a football play. They would spend less time doing that than they would spend telling us the stories of Marines who had overcome those types of tactics on the battlefield. And why did they do that? They did that because... They knew that, you know, if we were on the battlefield and we, you know, we were attacked and it was a close ambush, we may or may not remember the X's and O's, but we were going to remember the story and we were going to do everything we could in our power to live up to those who came before us and try to write ourselves into the story of the core by living up to that precedent. And so, you know, I think people just underestimate the value of the stories.
1: I agree with you. I mean, I, I mean, that's so true. I mean, isn't, it's crazy. Even sometimes, isn't it crazy sometimes I'm thinking about, and, and this is kind of a silly example, but at times when I'm like running or exercising and I'm feeling like about to quit or whatever, I'll think back to the story of like, you know, John Bass alone on Guadalcanal yeah. holding off. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like yeah, If he could sit there for three days, I can certainly go this extra half mile. You know what I mean?
0: It's yeah. things like that. I, I you hear know? you all the time, all the time.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's so great! I love this. This I haven't put it in that aspect of storytelling. Uh, that's something that, that's a takeaway for me on this this conversation. I'm going to incorporate that vernacular storytelling, and um, I, I I talk about it, but I never use that term storytelling. It's so powerful. Put it that way. Yeah. Well, what are you hoping to um, as you're looking forward, and we're getting close to wrap up here? I'm going to get a hard time here, but w- what are you hoping to accomplish with the release of this book? what's the vision for rubicon uh, in the future
0: yeah i you know this this book is a deeply personal project for me i you know i spent a couple of years really you know sharpening my pencil and working on it and it was an amazing process to go through it really forced me to reflect on my time overseas and my time building team rubicon my time like dealing with the tragedy of my sniper partner's suicide and and in in in, in thinking through those things, I really had to put all of them in perspective and really, um, I think, come to terms with them and how they've impacted and shaped my life. And so it was, it was a great and cathartic process for me. But I, I think my hope is that for people who didn't serve in the military that read it, that they gain a perspective that maybe really hasn't been shared from Iraq or Afghanistan before. And that is, you know, this book, even though I served on two grueling combat tours, it's not a chest-thumping Rambo right. book you know, it's, this isn't like that, you know, any, you know, that here's my body count book. This is really an exploration of what happens to a young man in war as he's trying to grapple with the impacts of of combat. But then beyond that, in coming home, it's really the story of, you know, further loss, that transition, trying to find out who I am, if Mm -hmm. I'm not a warrior. And then finally discovering that, you know, Hey, there is this power of, of of unity through service. and, And that's explored through building team Rubicon and you know, I think that, I mean, I'll be honest. I got into a fight with my publisher about when we should we should publish the book because they wanted to push it into 2021, and I said no. I want to publish it around the election, and they looked at me like I was crazy. They said it's going to get buried in the you know in the in the wash of the of a divisive election. I said no. I, I think that this is a story that people need to hear amidst it, right. and I think it, I think it can cut through the partisan crap that we're dealing with. And so, you know, I hope people read it, and I hope that they're re-inspired by America. At a time when, frankly, there's not a whole lot of inspiration going around. And I think I think if they, they read these stories of these men and women in Team Rubicon, they'll they'll actually get hopeful again about what potential we have for, you know, healing a divided country. I, I think that these these gray shirts, our volunteers, they are truly the best of America's values. And we just need people to rediscover those. It's that important to me. Um, that's why I wrote it.
1: I love that, man. You're absolutely right. And I was just having a conversation the other day about that exact thing is that, i mean and, and i think your gut instinct is spot on it was a great time to release it because there's such a vast and i think it's the majority i mean i think those people that are so divisive on each end are the minority and that there's a vast majority of us in the middle that are like searching for purpose searching for the harking for the days of you know ask not what your country can do for you but ask what you can do for your country type mentality oh, yeah right and they're oh, to
0: have that type of leadership again it, oh my
1: god yeah and people are hungry for it and you're right yeah. and and despite this country is great it's one of the most it's one of the most unique experience experiments ever and there are a lot of people out there and you're right your book highlights and gets to the core and rubicon behind it gets to the core of what makes this country great i agree with you 100 yeah. percent. so yeah i hope people read it too and i hope people you know volunteer for rubicon uh, Team Rubicon. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, how do people learn more about that and get in touch with you and get in touch with Team Rubicon?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I'd love for people to connect. If if you like what we were just just discussing over the last hour, you know, find me on social media. I'd love to keep the conversation going. I'm easy to find, you know, at Jake Wood, TR. Um, follow Team Rubicon, at Team Rubicon on any social um, go to our website teamrubiconusa.org. You can donate, which obviously, you know, it's been a hard year. I, I hesitate to ask anybody that's experienced financial hardship amidst the coronavirus to, to donate, but we're doing really consequential work. Otherwise, you know, if you if you don't have money but you got time, we'd love to have you volunteer. And finally, you know, I, this book, like I said, I I think it has, uh, you know, there's some real power and meaning in these pages and you can find it anywhere books are sold. It's called once a warrior would love to have you read it. And I'd love to hear about it. So, you know, if you read it and you love it, let me know on social, I'd love to engage on it.
1: Fantastic. Again, the book is once a warrior, how one veteran found a new mission closer to home just came out. And of course your book that came out a few years ago, five years ago or so, take command another great book, Jake, you're doing uh, amazing work. I'm so honored to know you. Uh, I'm glad to finally connected with you. I'd love to stay in touch and stay connected and see how I can even help with team Rubicon. So, um, I appreciate you coming on the show, man. This has been so much fun.
0: Yeah. I look forward to it. Maybe we can uh, keep the conversation going on a dreamliner one of these days. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Thanks Jake. All right. Take care. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show. I hope
1: you got some value out of this episode. If you did, please do me a huge favor. Tell somebody about this show your spouse, tell your kids, tell your coworkers. let them know about the value that Dosal Leadership brings to your world. Go to dosaleadership.com. You can learn more about my services. If you're looking for somebody to speak, teach, or coach about leadership, I'm your guy. I'm known for my ability to transform individuals and organizations, teaching them the concepts of creating a culture of decentralized leadership. I do think that is the secret sauce to facing all the challenges that we face today. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. I look forward to the next time we're together, and until the meantime, make it a great one.